0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie Anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. And if you're new, doubly welcome. I hope you enjoy this podcast. What I do here is I answer around 10. Today we have nine questions from you, the wonderful audience. And there's no bad question, stupid question, question that can't be asked or answered. We try to get through, you know, any and all that get the most thumbs ups over on the community tab of my podcast channel. So if you're on YouTube, you can just search Ask Katie Anything Podcast or go to the YouTube channel called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the podcast I have with my husband, Sean. Anyway, you can go over there and in the community tab on Sunday mornings, I post asking for your questions. And that's where I gather these. And just wanted to start off this week's actually by letting you know that this might seem silly for some of you, but hang with me. Um, Yesterday, I was just feeling super run down, just tired. And like, I could do work, but I couldn't film like I was supposed to record this podcast. I was like, I can't do it. I'm too tired. And so I moved everything to different days. So this is Tuesday, usually I film this on a Monday. I've been filming this on a Tuesday, and you know, no one will be the wiser. It'll be totally fine. But I took a nap and then I went to bed early. And the only reason I bring that up is because I think a lot of times we judge ourselves about needing rest. And we think that means that we're lazy or we're not keeping up with things the way that we should or something's wrong with us, right? We can have a lot of judgment around our need for rest. But rest is just as important as activity. And for some reason our society only values activity or work or production of something, right? And I think it's just as productive for me at least and for everybody out there really. It's just as productive for uh, when we're resting too. Because if I don't rest, I can't focus and then I can't do this podcast and I can't create other content for you and create other content for me, right? And so rest is just as valuable and just as important as productivity and it arguably is just as productive. And yeah, so I just want to bring that up so that I can kind of normalize the need for naps, the need for rest, because we're all human. We're not robots. And I don't know. I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but having been in the pandemic now for what feels like fucking forever, it's just emotionally exhausting to have to go through another holiday season with it. I think last year it was just kind of like, well, we're just doing this thing. It didn't seem so hopeless or helpless, but this year, I feel that even more so, I think, just because I don't know if it's ever going to really end in the way that we had thought it could, and so I have to adjust my expectations, and it's sad, and it's, I have to grieve, and it's also exhausting. So anyway, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I just want you to know that if you're feeling tired right now, it's okay to rest. We all need rest. And with that, let's jump into our questions. And again, not trying to be Debbie Downer, just trying to validate, help you all know that you're not alone. Okay, question number one says Hi, Katie. Is it possible to not be traumatized by something that is clearly traumatic to other people? Or are you just denying that you are? My parents were kidnapped and held at gunpoint when I was a small child. And for years, I didn't mind talking about it at all. Excuse me. But I noticed recently that my separation anxiety and fear of losing people might be tied to that. I still have no emotional reaction to the incident. Am I just suppressing the trauma or is it possible to not be that emotionally affected? What does trauma look like? Could it have just affected my perception of the world without being considered trauma? Thank you so much. I thought this was a great question. And the truth is, It is possible that we're not traumatized by something. We can be in a traumatic event, and because of our resilience, meaning our ability to manage life's ups and downs, this could be our innate ability, meaning we can take situations and be like, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. And we can kind of make sense of it in a very healthy and therapeutic way. Or we can have other people that we lean on for support, or we have other things that we do to process through it. But either way, <clears throat> we have this internal resilience that allows us to weather the storm and not be affected, not develop PTSD. See, we can be in a traumatizing situation and be traumatized. However, if we process it and deal with it, then we cannot develop PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Are you following? Because that entails certain symptoms that last for a certain amount of time. Maybe we're just able to work through it and not feel not become overwhelmed by it so much so that we develop that, okay? And so that is possible that that happened for you. However, it's not always just the talking about it that's hard. I have many patients. I mean, one patient pops into my head in particular – where he could talk easily about his sexual abuse that he sustained as a child. And that wasn't the problem. That didn't actually bother him at all. He'd talk through it so many times, he was just like, oh, it's just kind of tired of talking about it. There was no emotional response when he talked about it. And so you could think that, oh, hey, well, you know, there's no emotional charge when he talks about it. I think he's processed it. However, what he would still experience was actually body memories, and he would have flashbacks and panic attacks associated with those body memories, and it was debilitating. And so, I have to let everybody out there know that just because you can talk through it, because I used to think just being able to talk through it was enough, but I wasn't taking into consideration the effect that body memories can have on us and other attachment, right? This person's talking about attachment, other issues that could have arisen from the trauma. And so, it could. So I just want to put that out there. Okay. Period. End of that sentence. Let's move on to the next chunk of attachment. The person who asks questions that I don't re- uh, notice recently that my separation anxiety and fear of losing people might be tied to that. That's very possible. That does not mean, again, that doesn't mean you have PTSD. You could have separation anxiety or fear of abandonment and other things that could have come out of this trauma. Now, For some reason, and I'm probably just as guilty of doing this, is like just because we've been, we've encountered a trauma or experienced a traumatic situation does not mean we're going to have PTSD. We could have depression or anxiety or, you know, separation anxiety, other things that come up in our life as a result of the trauma, meaning that we were traumatized, but we don't develop PTSD, we develop different mental illnesses. And that is very, very possible. So is it that you're suppressing the trauma? Um, Or is it possible that you're just not that emotionally affected? Trauma, it happens. So then it asks, what does trauma look like? Trauma happens when we fear for the life and safety, like a physical or emotional safety of ourselves or someone we love. In the situation with your parents, that was definitely a traumatic situation. You were traumatized. However, I don't know if you have PTSD or not. Some of those symptoms could line up, like the separation anxiety. um, The fear of losing people could be just, part of your anxiety disorder that you're struggling with, or it could be a component of PTSD, you'd have to talk to a professional for them to ask you the whole gamut of questions to see what symptoms line up for you. But I just want you to know that this definitely would have affected your perception of the world, right? As children, we don't consider the world to not be a safe place unless we've already seen that happen, in which case you did. And so I really think what happened was a life changing event for you, Whether that's PTSD or not is something you'd have to talk to a clinician about. But I want everybody out there to know that just because we've been traumatized, again, does not mean that we will develop PTSD or even other mental illnesses. But we can not develop PTSD and develop depression or separation anxiety or borderline personality disorder. We can develop a lot of other mental illnesses as a result of a trauma. And so I really think that the person who asked this question was traumatized and is experiencing certain symptoms like, fear of losing people that you love and separation anxiety as a result of that. And that's what I would work on in therapy. That's what I would talk about. That's what I would try to process through. I have a feeling there's some exposure therapy that we might want to do, but also just challenging of those or challenging those false beliefs about the world and the situations around us and being able to identify how certain situations are different from the one where your parents were kidnapped and held at gunpoint. And also just as a Obvious thing. I am sorry that that happened to you and your parents. That is, that's, that's terrifying. And I'm sorry that they had to go through that and you had to go through that. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, as a follow up, are there certain types of events that cause trauma 100% of the time when they are experienced? I know you talk about resilience and that some people don't have full-blown diagnosable mental health conditions, even if they went through the same event or situation as someone else who does come out of it with a diagnosable condition. But are there any types of events that traumatize people who go through them 100% of the time, at least at a subclinical threshold? And what are um, some of these events or situations if so? The answer is no, there's not going to be any situation where someone comes out of it 100% of the time being traumatized. (laughs) Now, arguably, well, maybe that's not really correct. I guess if I think about it, it could be that that anything that makes us fear for our own emotional or physical safety or the emotional or physical safety of someone we love is traumatizing, period. So I guess any situation like that, 100% of the time we'd be traumatized. However, again, that doesn't like being traumatized does not equal PTSD. It can, but not always. Because if we don't have enough resilience built up, then we won't be able to weather it, and then we could develop PTSD or depression or anything else like that, right? And so I guess technically there's a situation, any situation that threatens our physical or emotional safety or those of who we love um, will be traumatizing. But again, that does not mean that we will have PTSD as a result. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, and then someone else said, as an add-on, is the same possible for sexual abuse in childhood? At the time, I thought it was normal, and only now do I realize that what actually happened was very illegal. I told my therapist about it, and he said that it doesn't seem like I drew any psychological damage from it. But now I wonder, is my fear of intimacy, emotional and sexual, um, may stem from this? thanks so much in advance for your videos. They really help a lot. Of course, of course. I'm so glad they're helpful. And this would be the same for sexual abuse in childhood. And I do want to say that it's very, it is very common for us to think that what's happening to us when we're a child is normal because we don't know any better. And if the person who's doing the abusing is telling us, hey, this is how people show that they love each other, some other bullshit answer abusers say, then we will think that what's happening is normal. And we won't take anything out of it at the moment and realize how bad it was. That's part of the reason that when we're healing from trauma later in life, we can struggle a lot with the kind of embarrassment and disgust of what took place. Because in the moment, we didn't think anything was bad. And we're like, well, this is just normal behavior. And as we get older, we realize just how bad and abusive that was. And it can be really hard for us to to navigate what comes up from that realization, if, if that makes sense. And so it is normal. What you're experiencing is unfortunately a very normal response to childhood sexual abuse. However, I, I don't really like that your therapist told you that you don't seem like you have any psychological damage from it. I'd be more prone. I would prefer that they just said, you know, let's talk through this and and you let me know if anything's still bothering you and not mentioning anything like you don't seem like you have any psych. I would never, I don't like to tell my patients that they do or don't have any psychological damage. I just wanna make sure that they're functioning okay and they feel okay. And if anything's coming up, if there's any symptoms, like you said, your fear of intimacy, I'd wanna dig into that. We don't have to pretend that you have damage from some event, but clearly something's happened and we need to figure out if it is coming from that. And if so, we need to work to heal it. End of story. It's not like you do or you don't, but if you have symptoms that are bothering you, let's dig into those, figure out where they came from so we can heal that because that's really the goal of therapy. Does that make sense, you guys? I hope so. Because I don't, I don't like to assume, I feel like your therapist is assuming and, you know, like you don't seem like you drew any psychological damage from that. I don't, I don't really like, I don't like that. I feel like it's saying like, well, what's bothering you and how can I help? That's more the, like the perspective or the angle that I take when I work with patients. So anyways, that I would assume that the fear of intimacy, emotional, sexual stems from that. That's a, a something to bring up and to dig into to see if you are correct and if that is where it comes from. And if so, then we work to heal from that so that it stops affecting us in our day-to-day life, right? Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Katie, can you go into emotional trauma a little more? Of course. I experienced all of the symptoms of emotional trauma, but my parents were always there if I needed them, including if I ever asked, they would support me emotionally and give advice. They didn't yell or put me down like typical stories of emotional abuse, but the problem was I never went to them for help, so I never really received the support to my own choice. And with my sibling being the problem child, a.k.a. the squeaky wheel, they took most of the attention from my parents. Is this this considered emotional neglect or something else? It's emotional neglect. And with my sibling being, um, oh, sorry, yes, I was emotionally, quote, unquote, forgotten, but it was by my choice. So am I just overplaying it then? In addition, I was also the family therapist from a young age, so that could be part of it, 100%. Okay, it's a great question. Now, emotional abuse or emotional trauma is something that it can happen in a lot of ways. It can happen overtly, meaning a parent shouts at us, puts us down, says things that are hurtful. Emotionally wounding activities take place, calling us lazy, stupid. You're never going to be good enough. Um, It could even just be yelling in general and like, go to your room. You're such a piece of shit and blah, blah, blah. It could be stuff like that. That's all emotional abuse, however, the lack of support like this this person who asked a question saying they were emotionally forgotten. That is called emotional neglect, meaning that even if our parent looks good on paper, right? Like they have we have a roof over our head, they feed us, they, we go to a good school, you know, they make sure we have all of our school supplies and everything we have we need. They do all of that stuff, but they're not there for us emotionally the way that we need. This could mean that, you know, when we are feeling down and out or we need them to support us, they're not there. Or when we have a failure in life, like, you know, let's say we tried out for something we didn't make it or, you know, we got a a bad grade on a test or something, we go to our parent, they're not there emotionally to support us. They're only there to support us by kind of like the material things in life and like the good on paper type of things. And that emotional neglect can be just as traumatizing, just as abusive as the overt, right? So overt versus covert, it's like overt is out in the open. Covert is kind of like you don't really see it or hear it. It's not there. It's like the absence of it that makes it abusive. And that's what can make emotional abuse so difficult to pin down and why a lot of people invalidate their experience or judge the fact that they're struggling because they're like, well, I wasn't actually hit or I wasn't, you know, nothing really happened. Sometimes the lack of things happening can be just as abusive, if not more so. And so I just encourage you to notice if you're telling yourself that you don't have a right to feel that way, pay attention to that and challenge it. You know, maybe by re-listening to this answer or just telling yourself, you know, emotional abuse is real too. So anyways, back into this question, I just wanted to put that out there so we all understand. When you're a child, you don't really have, I mean, yes, you make choices and you can choose who a parent to go to or how to get the support that you need, but because you were kind of forgotten is emotional abuse. It is emotional neglect. And it's not because, oh, you should have chose, like you have to go to your parents all the time. That's not always the case. Parents should come to you, should check in on you. That's part of being a parent. And it sounds like you kind of were, obviously you're the family therapist, so you were a parentified child, meaning that you had to take on a parental role or an adult older more adult role in the family than your age warranted so in a way you lost your childhood in a lot of way i would assume that maybe as an adult you really there's still a lot of childhood things you'd like to do or maybe you find yourself being overly responsible or uh incredible people pleaser that can happen too um But it's not that we have to try to go to our parents and they're not there. That's not the only way that emotional neglect can happen. It can happen when they just don't seek us out. They just kind of forget us, emotionally forget us. And that's what happened to you. And yes, that is emotional abuse. Because a parent should seek out their child, check in with their child, listen to them, be there for them. That's what, you know, a healthy parent-child relationship looks like. And so I hope that just kind of clears that up a little bit. Okay. And also, by the way, being a parentified child is in a lot of ways emotionally neglectful because that means that the parent wasn't doing their job, and so we, like, stood up and did the job for them, and that's not really appropriate. I'm not saying you did anything wrong. I'm saying your parent did something wrong because that means that role was not filled, so you filled the role, right? And that's not fair to you. You should be able to – you should feel free to be a child. Okay now the comment on this is an add-on or like my mom used to yell at me for not eating. I had an undiagnosed restrictive eating disorder and probably depression starting from year five or six or so to about 11 and 12 years old or that if I wanted to lose weight to exercise more or because I had a suicide attempt she would get angry because I wouldn't talk to her and because it put a lot of stress on her because I made a tea for myself and not for her. These yelling outbursts would last at least a half an hour and happen a minimum of once a week and I would just sit there while she did it, not saying anything. Sometimes she would even ask at the end, do you even love me? Wow, how manipulative. And when she wasn't doing that, her advice would have, would either be very supportive and nurturing or suck it up and push through. It was often the second one. So usually I would tell myself to suck it up. Even now in my mid-20s, I still do this. She would also compare herself to me all the time. Like I know this isn't the worst type of emotional abuse and that parents are people and have off days, but I feel like this kind of treatment isn't really talked about. I agree. Emotional abuse isn't talked about enough. And what you went through and what you experienced is emotional abuse. Your mom yelling at you is that overt emotional abuse I was talking about when, you know, she's screaming at you. Uh, and then, do you even love me? I wonder if your mom is, has borderline personality disorder or is a narcissist. It sounds Some of that sounds like that push-pull or that emotional manipulation. They can come along with some of those uh, mental illnesses, if they, especially if they go untreated, right? Um but the getting angry, yeah, that's definitely emotional abuse and comparing herself to you. That's what sounds a little bit narcissistic, like as if she sees you as an extension of her. And I don't know, it's very, this is very unhealthy behavior. And so, yes, that is emotional abuse. Yes, your mom did overt and covert emotional abuse. And she wasn't really there for you, she was just yelling. And yeah, probably part of the reason why you have that eating disorder. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hey, Katie, how do I handle not taking people worrying about me seriously? For example, in my last therapy session towards the end, my therapist told me that I can always call or email him if I need someone to talk to He probably offered that because I'm changing my health insurance and won't see him for two weeks. He probably did. However, when he said that, I immediately thought that he was just saying that to be nice. Whenever people are nice to me or offer me help, I dismiss it. I don't take them or their offer seriously. I also feel like a burden. Any tips on how to be better with it? Hope this made sense. English is not my first language. Well, honey, your English is impeccable. So, this is interesting. Now, I'm just going to cut right to the chase on this because this got a lot of thumbs up and a lot of comments about, oh, me too, me too. I feel this way also. The reason that we don't. Take people worrying about us seriously or kind of try to negate it, like, oh, they're just saying that to be nice, is because of our self talk. It's because of how we speak to ourselves about how we're doing and what we, what I guess, what we deserve would be the right word. We think we don't deserve anything. We're not good enough. We're not sick enough. We're not doing enough, whatever it is. We're not enough. This usually comes out of a deeply held belief that we're not enough. And so, truly, the way to get better with it is to notice the conversation that you have with yourself and use those bridge statements. We got to build out of that. Every time you allow yourself to say, oh, they're doing that because they're, they're trying to be nice. They don't really care about me. I want you to, to write those things down. They don't really care about me. And any other thoughts that that accompany that thought? there's usually a lot. It's like a thought, I don't know, like a thought cloud, right? Filled with a bunch of different things. A thought storm. What are some of the, you know, three to five that come out of that? And could we, instead of just letting those thoughts happen and agreeing with them, letting them be facts, even though they're not, thoughts are not facts, can we say, I am open to the thought, it's possible, maybe not now, but it's possible sometimes that people actually just care about other people. I don't know if they care about me necessarily, but they might, and they might care about other people. Can we start building that bridge? moving it into a more positive place, I really believe that that is going to change this conversation you have with yourself. And then here's a random other tip that helped me. When I was like in my own pit of despair, I try to give compliments to strangers, not out loud in my head. And I know I've talked about this a lot, but it's really helpful, especially when we're struggling with the conversation we have with ourselves. If we find it difficult to have any kind of positive conversation or give ourselves any kind of compliment, look out at other people as you see them crossing the street or getting their coffee or getting into their car or whatever and i want you to think of a compliment just in your head like oh well he looks he looks really nice today really go- he cleaned up looks good must be headed to work or wow there that yeah, that's such a nice car It looks like they just got it washed good for them wow or you know well, that person was awfully friendly. That's so nice of them to take time out of their day to be friendly to others, whatever it is. I know this sounds silly. I don't care how silly, I want you to keep doing it. Because by putting that positive out there, by looking out into our world and looking for things that we can compliment and feel good about and looking for the positive in general, it's going to make it really, really like leaps and bounds easier for us to come up with positive things to say about ourselves. Don't ask me why. I don't really know the science in our brain. About it, I do know our brain is wired to seek out threat and look for negativity because that's actually threatening to our well-being, which is why it's easier to focus on those things, which is why we have to like actually like uh, flex this muscle and pull it into positive. But I don't really know why, you know, it's it's so easy for us just to believe all these thoughts when they're not true, the negative ones about ourselves I'm referencing. Um, But focusing on that positive and taking time to think of those things will make you feel better. Just trust me on that one. Okay. Now let's move on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie, could you please tell us more about how you experienced each of your different roles as, it says psychologist, but I'm a therapist, and someone corrected them in the comments, thank you very much, Um, your different roles as a therapist throughout your career. When you were at the eating disorder clinic or private psychotherapist and now a YouTuber, and how do you look at these roles now? If you could go back, would you change anything, like not working at the clinic at all, and why? What did you like at each of these jobs the most? Sending lots of love. I thought this was interesting that you guys want to know about this. But my first job ever was actually not at the eating disorder treatment center. It was at this, it uh, was called, they've changed the name of it now, but it used to be called the Center for Individual and Family Counseling. It was in North Hollywood. And it was a free clinic. And my actually, my first patient was an eating disorder patient of all things, which is kind of ironic now looking back. But um, I... I loved therapy from the beginning, but working at the free clinic, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world. My supervisor, Ken, was awesome. 10 out of 10, loved him. He gave such great advice. Um, but anyways, back to that. The I didn't like it because I had a lot, like a ton of court-appointed patients, meaning that they were forced in a court of law to come to me for X number of sessions. And when someone's forced to come into therapy, that just, they don't want it. They don't want to change. They don't even want to be there. Sometimes people would refuse to talk, and I just don't. I've talked about this before over the years. Like, I don't think forcing a child or an adult into therapy is like ever beneficial. Maybe there's like these random people who are like, after six sessions, I decide to open up. It's just not. It's not conducive. That's not. Or it's not conducive to change. Like therapy doesn't work like that. So I wish they'd stop doing that. Um, but loved working at that clinic. I felt like it was a great place to start. I got great advice and feedback from my supervisor, Ken, and we had group supervision, which was great. I got to hear what other people were doing who were farther along in their hours and all that good stuff. Overall, I wouldn't change that job for the world. It was really helpful. It was a great place for me to start. But again, I just didn't love the court-appointed stuff. And then my next job was at the Eating Disorder Treatment Center, like an inpatient, and... It was really an eye-opener. I was definitely in over my head from the beginning because I didn't understand eating disorders. For those of you who know, I had a couple of friends, one really close friend in high school who struggled with an eating disorder and still has difficulty from time to time when their life gets super stressful um, now. But I just didn't understand, and it was like a steep learning curve. But I'm glad that I stayed there for, for longer. I was only at the one in North Hollywood for maybe like a year or six months, or I don't know. I think it was about a year. Anyway, but the eating disorder treatment center, was there for much longer. And it was really helpful. It was a great place to learn. It was a great place to see change happen, like really quickly because it was 24-7 care. And it just really helped me better understand eating disorders and actually get into the specialty that I currently still am in because it's just such rewarding work. But I will say that working at a clinic like that can be a recipe for burnout for a lot of people. I've had a lot of friends of mine do that kind of work for more than a couple of years, like I did. I think I was in there for like 3 or 4 years total. Um, some of my friends worked on it worked full time at one of those clinics and you don't really get holidays off or regular days off like other people. You have to have people cover because the clinic goes on without you, right? Like kit, like whoever's there, the patients that are there don't like not, you know, you can't just shut up shop for Christmas or whatever. And so a lot of my friends burnt out doing that. So just be aware of that. But I loved it. And I'm so grateful to all of the the women that I worked with at that clinic and all of the training I received. I feel like it made me a better therapist. And then I worked at the hospital. I worked for a hospital group. Um, I worked at three different hospitals in LA County and loved it. It helped me put uh, faces and experiences to schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, things that I hadn't seen a ton of in other places that I'd worked. And so overall, when it comes to gaining my hours and working on things, I really think it was great that I did a bunch of different types of, I don't even know what you'd call it, but types of jobs, I guess, in different areas, because it allowed me to see the gamut of mental illness, and then kind of decide what I wanted to do and like where I wanted to go with it. And so if any of you out there are considering becoming a therapist, check out a bunch of different types of things, things that maybe you didn't think that you'd be interested in because you just don't know until you do it. Um, And then moving right along, my private practice, it's great. And the flexibility that you get from running your own practice is is amazing because I was only in my practice like Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I want to say, I forget my schedules because it changed all the time. But I want to say it was Monday, Tuesday, Thursdays for a while. And then I went to Tuesday, Thursdays. Then I went to just Thursday afternoon. Anyway, I slowly whittled down my practice, if you don't know. And especially then leading up to the move, I had to refer my patients out. Um, I loved it. However, you're always on the hook for that. Meaning that unlike when you work at an eating disorder treatment center, when you leave work, you leave work. And there are other people who are on staff to take over for you. But when you work for yourself, you're the one that's on the hook. And you, if you leave, like if I went on vacation, I had to put other clinicians in charge of emergency situations, meaning like, hey, you know, my friend Alexa, or I used to, uh, a good friend of mine, colleague of mine, Dr. David Fogelson, I'd be like, hey, you know, people will call you if they need need anything, I'm going to be out for a week or whatever. And so there was a lot of that. So you have to have people cover for you when you go out on vacation. Also, you don't get paid when you're on vacation, right? Because you only get paid for the hours that you work in your office. And yeah, so there's pluses and minuses to each also like running an office and, Doing all the billing and stuff um, can be cumbersome, and I was just a single person doing it, so I didn't uh, take insurance, which I know can be stressful for some people, but I did offer those super bills, and my patients got reimbursed, and there was no issue there. But So there's pluses and minuses. I don't think I could ever do private practice full-time. I just... It's just not for me. I, I enjoy the clinics, and I like working with other clinicians too much. I, I just don't like to be by myself all the time, just seeing patients in and out. That's, that's not for me. And then now as a YouTuber, um, never thought this would be a job. Never thought this would be a thing. It still blows my mind that this is what I'm doing. Um, it's so rewarding. Oh, my God. So And it's it's not more rewarding than doing like regular clinical work it's just different. The ability to reach people on a broader scale, like in my office, I could only, I think at max, I was seeing like 30 patients a week. And that was like a a lot. I know people are like, oh, people work 40 hours a week, but there's a lot of work behind the scenes, like reading books and gathering info and, you know, talking to psychiatrists and other therapists they're seeing and regular doctors and all the the work a good therapist should be doing behind the scenes for you. I don't think, I mean, 30 was just too many. I don't know how I did that. But anyway, Being on YouTube allows me to reach more people, and I think that that's really, really cool. And then I get to hear from all of you and hang out with a lot of you on Patreon, and that's wonderful. Also, um, yeah, I wouldn't change anything. I was actually going to do a TikTok about this today because so often I think we look back and like, oh, I hated that, or that was terrible, or I don't want to do it, but it helped me learn. And if I hadn't had some of those bad experiences or things that I didn't like or did like, then I wouldn't have been able to choose the job that I'm doing or the career path that I've taken. And nothing's perfect. There's always going to be things that I like and don't like about certain careers and situations. Like being a YouTuber isn't all, you know, lollipops and candy canes. It's like people want to talk shit and there's haters and people want to be rude in comments and people want to take things out of context and pretend that, that YouTube is always real life, which it isn't, and... I have to deal with that, and I don't think it's for everybody. Like, I've been trying to get my girlfriend, Alexa, to create a channel for years. And she's like, mm, I don't think I'm up for it. Like, I don't know how you take deal with that stuff and people saying things about you. I don't think I could handle that. And I don't know if she could, right? Like, she knows herself best, and I know she's also extra sensitive. And I'm extra sensitive, too, but it, I don't know. For some reason, I'm just like, these people aren't worth it. Like, the people who I can help are worth it. And so I just keep going, but... Yeah. There's pluses and minuses to every job. No job is perfect. And I think any of you out there, if you're younger and you're trying to figure out what you want to do, know that no job is perfect. They come with their pluses and minuses, but my pluses definitely outweigh the minuses. Um, Yeah. And I wouldn't change anything. I think when I got into YouTube, it was kind of fun that I've been on YouTube for as long as I have because things were just so different. And yeah, it was just a totally different time. It allowed me to kind of like get used to doing what I was doing before it was like a big deal at all and any way to make money. It was always just a hobby. Um, and now that I don't see patients in, in my office anymore, it's definitely been weird for me, and it's a transition. I am I, I know I've been saying this for a while, but I actually have it up, a tab open of how to get my license in Texas, and it's a pretty simple process. I just have to request some paperwork and stuff like that um, and take a test. So I am going to do that. Am I going to open up a practice here? I don't think so for right now. I, I don't know where I would squeeze that time in, but I do miss some of those in-office I miss seeing patients in office. And yeah, I guess that's it. wouldn't change anything. The thing that I like about my job in general is that I get to help people and I get to interact with people, and it's always changing because people are always changing. And I think that's what makes it so rewarding and entertaining and enjoyable and all the things. So anyway, I hope that answers the question. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, where's the line between normal amounts of anxiety and too much or unhealthy anxiety? Good question. I recently graduated from grad school and am now moving to a new state across the country to start my new job in a few weeks. I feel like I've always been a little anxious and tend to worry at baseline, but I've always been able to manage it up until now. I know that all of this change should be causing me some anxiety, but lately the anxiety just seems to always be there and nothing I do seems to make it go away. I'm worried that I won't ever go back down, oh, that it won't ever go back down now. When the anxiety is more or less justified, what suggestions do you have for making it go down or at least be more manageable? Thanks for all that you do. Now, normal amounts of anxiety is really like low grade. The difference between clinically significant anxiety, meaning an anxiety disorder, and what we would call, I guess, a normal amount of anxiety is that the clinically significant type is, makes it, it impairs our ability to function is the terminology we use in the therapy field. But what that really means is that it makes it impossible for us to do what we need to do each day. Meaning I can't do the things I need to do at work or school or my social life, or it just makes everything harder and maybe impossible to do. And so it feels like it's, I said, it's like impairing you and like it's getting in the way and because you have a lot going on and it is warranted and it is justified. It might be situational anxiety is what we would call it. Like I have patients who have situational depression, like following the death of a loved one, if they've uh, before they've changed things in the DSM recently, but it used to be, you only had how many, I think it was two months or six months, somebody, I don't know, back in the day, I forget, but bereavement. So when someone would pass away in your life, you could only grieve for so long and then they would try to, uh, say that at that point, then it was major depressive disorder. And clinicians pretty much unanimously were like, that's bullshit. Nobody grieves for like an X amount of time. This is stupid. So they've changed it. But, um, I would, but then I used to say for my patients who would do that, who would, who would be grieving for longer, I would say, well, now it's situational depression. That's what I would call it. And in this case, I would call this situational anxiety. Things are happening. You have something going on that's like causing it. And when we have a cause, I would argue that it might be more stress than anxiety. But again, it doesn't matter. We don't need to split hairs on this. The, my, my suggestions for, for you would be to, to go, you're moving. So that maybe try Talkspace or BetterHelp or one of those online resources. I think there's links down in the description of every one of my videos. I think um, on BetterHelp you get a discount or something, but getting an online therapist for right now in the state that you're moving to, just so you have a place to dump stuff. So I'll give you a personal example. When Sean and I were getting married, I was also studying. It was like leading up to our wedding. I was doing all the wedding planning and stuff. And I was also studying my to take my licensing exam. And so I was working five days a week. And then on the weekends, I was taking my licensing exam uh, classes, like courses, and preparing for that. And it was just overwhelming you guys to say the least and it got to the point where my my girlfriend joanna that i worked with at the time was like you're i started crying she asked me how i was and i was like Ooh, not good i was just overwhelmed just super stressed out and wasn't sleeping well and the whole thing and so getting into therapy. So I got back into therapy and I went twice a week for like a couple of months and then once a week. Anyway, it was helpful just to have a place to dump all the shit that's going on in your head. And I think that that could benefit you the most because this situation is stressful. It is anxiety provoking. It's overwhelming. And you need to have somewhere to to dump it all so that you don't have to feel like you need to carry it. And Also, my therapist at the time helped me out like logistically. She was like, I think you need to make a list every day of like five things that you can do. And so she kind of broke stuff down for me so that I didn't feel so overwhelmed and didn't find my head spinning at night. And um, maybe medication could help you for a short period of time. Just know that usually when it comes to SSRIs or SNRIs, you have to go on them titrating up for about six months and then titrating down. And so I think I want to say the least amount of time you could be on is like six months. So just keep that in mind. But most of my patients you know, can be helped by kind of going on and off a medication. And again, talk to your doctor. I'm not a doctor. I know medications are all different. And I, I do have a bipolar patient who goes on and off her meds for maybe like a month or two just to pull her out so she doesn't go into mania. So there's a lot of different things that they can do to help, but that might benefit you as well too, just for a short period of time to get you through this. It's okay to get extra support. And I really think that that, will make it more manageable. Because I could tell you, talk to your friends about it, do the full body shakes, make sure that you're stretching and getting some movement in your body. That's all great. Eating regularly, you know. But aside from your basic needs and doing some, you know, caretaking, which you might not even feel like you have time for, by the way, we're just going to need some professional help. There's going to, there's limitations to what we can do on our own. That's why therapists exist, right? And I really think that it will help you the most and get you feeling better more quickly. Now, there was a comment on this that adding to this, I also experience a lot of anxiety where I keep ruminating every day to the point where it interferes with my productivity. There you go. There's your impairing your ability to function we talked about earlier. But it's hard to stop because my anxiety convinces me that it's important to keep worrying and that it's productive and makes me worry that if I stop thinking about it, I'm wasting time or won't be prepared, etc., even though it's tiring to keep doing it. So what are the ways to number one, convince ourselves it's okay if we don't constantly ruminate and number two, lessen the anxiety. Now what's happening here sounds kind of like OCD or what we would call pure OOCD. Now I have a full video on it. You can search on my channel for pure OOCD and then just put my name at the end, Katie Morton, it'll come up. Um, the truth is that the best way to stop that is to actually stop the worrying or stopping the ruminating and prove to ourselves that it wasn't worth it. That's actually how you kind of undo OCD. Now, I'm not an OCD specialist, and there are people who are. There's clinics, people you can see who only treat OCD. But we do know that if we can put off doing the compulsion, meaning let's say my compulsion is to worry, to ruminate, if I'm like, absolutely not, I'm going to watch, I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to talk to someone. I'm going to do read a book. I'm going to do something else. We try to force our brain out of it. If we can put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off, that urge goes away. And then the anxiety goes down. Because usually, like this person described, what keeps us caught in that OCD kind of cycle is we obsess about something, right? We have an obsession. Obsession is like, uh, I don't even know for this person, I guess, like, It's making sure that you're being productive, let's say. And so then we worry about how productive we've been so much. So that's obsession. We obsess, obsess. And the compulsion is that we need to continue to be productive at all times. We need to worry and be doing stuff all the time, even though it's exhausting and gets us nowhere. And if we don't do that thing, then we think it's going to get worse, that something bad is going to happen. And so that's what kind of keeps us caught, that worry that something bad is going to happen if we don't do the compulsion. But I'm here to tell you, if you can put it off and put it off and not do the compulsion, your anxiety level will go down. And that's actually how we kind of get ourselves out of that cycle. Does that make sense? I have videos about OCD and pure OCD if you want to watch to learn more. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hi, Katie. I've been seeing my therapist for over two years now, and she is truly great. However, Since our first session, I'm behaving extremely shy, as if I only just met her recently. I'm for sure not the most confident person to exist. I've been struggling with holding eye contact and feeling inferior to everybody, especially to women, ever since I was little. But in my normal life, I'm still able to have normal conversations and to appear somewhat confident. I even manage to hold eye contact if I really force myself to. I feel like I'm putting up a front in therapy and even kind of lying to my therapist since I'm such a different person in real life than she thinks I am. But no matter how often I try, I can't seem to show a bit more self-confidence in sessions or hold eye contact for more than two seconds. Especially the eye contact part bothers me, even though she told me that I don't need to force myself to. Therapy makes me feel like a little frightened girl that got beaten up and I um, even get... And I even get more nervous, blush, and sweat more quickly when I actively try to improve it. What are your thoughts on this? Why would someone struggle so much with confidence? And any tips on how to solve the issue? I feel like it keeps me from making further progress. Thanks for all you do, and sorry for any grammar or spelling mistakes. Lots of love from the Netherlands. Your English was wonderful. Now, it's interesting. I have a couple of a couple of questions, a couple of concerns. Now, eye contact... Hmm, can definitely be part of confidence. It can also be part of autism spectrum disorder or ASD. And I would want you to be assessed for that. Not that I necessarily think that's what's going on, but when anybody tells me that it's like impossible and they kind of have to force themselves and we feel, I don't know, I I just, just a little red flag. I'm like, hmm, I'd be interested in that. And maybe even just reading a book about autism to see if you, if any of the autistic traits that you read about like ring true for you. I would just be a little curious. I would want to dig into that and assess for that so that I could rule it out or rule it in, okay? So that's one question mark in my head. Now, when it comes to confidence, I'm very interested and very curious about this feeling inferior, especially to women since you were little. Was your mom emotionally abusive or grandma or some other caretaker, some other woman figure in your life? Did someone put you down a lot? I'm curious about that because if that if if I'm saying those questions and you're saying yes, oh my gosh, yes, my grandma my or emotionally neglectful, emotionally abusive, did they do anything? Um, I'm really curious if that is where it came from, and if so, then that's what we need to work on. It's actually healing that abusive wound from our childhood that will help us push through feel more confident, be okay, not be so triggered, being around another woman, feeling so inferior, that will help us heal from that. But in the meantime, I actually have a video. It was a video I did with Tinder. It was like like two, was it two winters ago? Lord knows. I think it was last winter. Anyways, long story short, not important. Um, But I have a video about building self-confidence. You can probably just look on YouTube, building confidence, Katie Morton, it'll come up. But the... The things that we can do to build confidence are, number one, notice our self-talk. Of course, you knew this was coming. Pay attention to what you say to yourself. And if it's a nasty thing, we need to use those bridge statements I talked about earlier to start building a bridge towards a healthier, happier you. This will never be a waste of anyone's time. Doing this, even me doing this now, it's helpful. It makes me feel better. It's actually, it can change your life, okay? Second, Giving compliments to other people, even if it's just in your head, like I was talking about earlier, that helps us feel better about ourselves. It's weird, but it does. Then the next is to build mastery. Find something that you want to be good at or you're already kind of good at and let's get better at it. And I know it sounds silly, but having a few things in life that we're good at makes us feel better about who we are. And so I'd encourage you to spend some time building some mastery, getting better at something. And then also I'll add in the fourth and kind of final thing I'll mention is like checking your facts. When we tell ourselves we're inferior or that things aren't, and that's kind of like the the thoughts, like noticing your thoughts and arguing back, but sometimes it can help to just reframe it and call it checking facts. So if we're saying that we're inferior, we're not good enough, some this, that, and the other, do you have any facts to support that? Let's check those facts. Let's see how we're doing. Let's, you know. Let's change that around. We can check them and come up with other evidence to support a different way of thinking. So those are my thoughts. But I am curious about what happened when you were little and why you feel inferior to women. And I'd be very interested to hear or to have you write about your relationship with women early in your life, like grandma, aunt, mom, sister, whoever, and what happened. Um, because I wonder why you feel so frightened or inferior around women and why it's hard to make eye contact. Okay. That's all I have for that. Let's move on to question number seven. And question number seven says, I have BPD and have suffered years of narcissistic abuse at the hands of my family, ex-friends, and partners. I'm so sorry. Some people believe that I have no right to talk about my experience with narcissistic abuse because of the BPD or borderline personality disorder if you don't know what I'm talking about. What are your thoughts on this as well as the general stigma against BPD? Now, everyone has a right to talk about your experiences with any kind of abuse, regardless of what your own mental illnesses are. I don't know who told you this, but that's stupid and ignorant and also really hurtful and invalidating. I don't understand why, because the existence of one mental illness doesn't mean that that the person who has a mental illness can't also experience pain and suffering. I don't know why that would be a thing. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't agree with that. And I don't even understand where they would come up with such a ridiculous statement. So you have every right to talk about your experiences with any kind of abuse or upset or anything that's going on with you. Having BPD doesn't mean that you can't talk about things. It just means, and here's the thing about BPD and the stigma and why it exists. When we have BPD, we I I love the term like emotional burn victims. That's what it can feel like. Everything around us, we're just super sensitive to any potential slight, any potential abandonment. Meaning if someone like doesn't show up for us, say they said they were going to meet us for lunch and they flake last minute or let's say even tell us a day in advance like I can't come I'm so sorry and because we have BPD a lot of times we won't believe their excuse and we think that they don't want to be near us because we really think something's we have a lot of shame and a lot of just like inner turmoil uh, struggle with their sense of self we can say things like oh they never really wanted to be with us anyway they don't really like us they're just going to leave us blah, blah 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 right we can go down that pit of despair and that spiral can happen really quick and so Because of that, our relationships can suffer. We can try to push away more quickly. Uh, We can cut people off when we really shouldn't. And we can do things to hinder the development of healthy relationships because of our deep, deep worry that we're going to be abandoned and that we don't believe that we're really worth it. And all of that can make it really hard. And so that's really where the stigma comes from because when we do that, what we're doing is we're harming other people and maybe trying to manipulate people to do things so that we feel soothed and okay, like they're not going to leave us, right? And we can try to create scenarios that prove that. And this, I mean, I've had patients in the past threaten to harm themselves if someone didn't show up. And then when the person does show up and they're like, see, they do love me. Okay, okay. And I know that that's manipulative. And I know that can be hurtful to other people in, their li- in, you know, in our life when we're doing it. But We do it as a way to self soothe And so that's why therapy is really, really important for someone with BPD. Luckily, those with BPD are almost always, I feel like I haven't had, I don't know, most of you out there have told me that if you have BPD, you're very open to therapy. And I, I don't think I've had any. any, even patients I've had, obviously they've come into my office, but I'm just saying, I feel like they've been in therapy for a long time. Even if it wasn't with me, they've been open to it from an early age. And so I think that's really great because once we can try to manage that urge to, to, it's it's really like what we call splitting, meaning thinking that people are all good or all bad. There's no in between and everybody's in between. So as soon as someone does something we think is hurtful, we're like, oh, well, they're bad. And then we like cut them off and leave them or act in a way to force that cut off. And- if we can get that kind of behavior and that impulse under control, so we can manage it, so we have, you know, some emotion regulation skills, some mindfulness skills, some uh, interpersonal effectiveness skills, meaning we can communicate more clearly with those we love. When we can get those things on board and be able to enact those, then we we would stop doing the behavior that people find so upsetting. And both people are are like right in this situation, meaning the people who are hurt who don't have BPD. have every right to feel hurt, every right to be mad because what happened sucked. And the people with BPD have, they fear this abandonment so intensely. Other people can't understand that, that emotional burn victim sense. We're so sensitive that we have every right to want to protect ourselves and soothe. We just have to find a healthier, better way to do it so that we don't end up hurting the people that we love and causing more upset for ourselves. Does that make sense? And so anyways, those are really my thoughts on it. I think a lot of people get upset about those with BPD because they've had someone in their life who hadn't had help yet, didn't know how to manage that urge and impulse to split or to manipulate in order to soothe, and so that hurt has turned into shouting online about people, you know, not being worth it, blah blah, all the garbage and shit talking that people do online. Ugh. So. That's really, those are my thoughts. We're all responsible for our own actions and how those, you know, how we interact with other people. We're not responsible for how other people react to us, but if we can do something to make relationships better and to more healthfully interact, everybody's happier. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. This question says Hi, Katie. Lately, I've been freaking out about going to doctor's appointments. I am a chronic illness patient and have had four surgeries in less than two years. Oh my God, talk about trauma. I've always been uncomfortable going to doctors, but now it's really bad. Like panic attacks, scary. I'm seeing a therapist for anxiety, depression, and bipolar 1, and I've heard of medical trauma. But is this what I'm experiencing? I know that I've got to get this under control and any advice will help. Thanks." Yes, what you're experiencing is medical trauma. And if anybody out there doesn't know, even my own brother, I think, had this. Um, I don't think he does anymore, but he definitely did as a teenager. My brother was born with a cleft lip and palate. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. And so he had to have a shit ton of surgeries when he was really little, like before I was even born. My brother's, you know, over three years older than me. And so a lot of his surgeries he had before I was even around to form any memories at all. And he... I remember when he was like, maybe in middle school, there was a new surgery out to like finally get rid of the scar because he does have a scar on his lip. And he was like, absolutely not. He told my mom, he's like, I'm never having surgery on my face again. I I refuse. I I can't. And I don't know if this like caused any attachment issues with him. I don't, you know, my brother doesn't talk to me that much about that kind of stuff. But I'd be interested in things like that because... All of those surgeries and being separated from my mom at such a young age for for those surgeries had to be really hard on him. It was hard on my mom. She still, like, could talk about it and get worked up. It was so scary for her and hard for her, too, and my dad. But anyways, long story short, there is definitely a trauma when it comes to having to have surgeries and being fearing for your life now remember going back to the first question we talked about trauma being traumatized really means that we fear for our own emotional or physical safety or those we love but in this case we're talking about ourselves right having to have a surgery and having a chronic illness and even just having to read the paperwork and sign the thing whether you want them to resuscitate you or not or what's going on and having all these like things in place for when you go into surgery that's traumatizing it's terrifying it is scary and to downplay it, you know, four surgeries in less than two years, that's a lot of trauma. And I think that's why you're freaking out going to doctor's appointments, because you're like, this is just the first step and a couple other steps, I'm going to have to be back and have a surgery, right? It's what you're experiencing isn't just trauma, it's PTSD, because a huge component of PTSD, one of the main, like critical symptoms is that we avoid situations that remind us of the previous trauma. And that's what you're trying to do here. You're trying to avoid doctor's appointments because it reminds you of your your past trauma. And my best advice for this is to start seeing a therapist, talk to someone. There are also groups. And I don't ask the hospital because I know with COVID things are all fucked up, but there used to be a lot of, there's tons of grief and grieving groups of hospitals, by the way, and hospice care. If you're losing someone that you love, they have groups just to have to ask. But especially chronic illness, um, there are groups for the patients and there's groups for their caregivers or family members. And I used to refer patients to one at UCLA all the time and it was really great. And I just encourage you to ask the people at your hospital or your doctor's office if there are groups for that and how you can get, hooked up with that or if they have any um, therapists or psychologists that they recommend because getting in to see someone yourself just to be able to vent and talk about everything that's going on and hopefully process through the trauma you've sustained in the last two years so that you can come out the other end healed okay and and aware of your triggers right going to the doctor is going to be a trigger so we need to build up our resilience ahead of time we need to take care of our basic needs as much as we can set ourselves up for success when we go Make sure we don't have anything left to do the rest of the day so we can just kind of chill out. You know, all of that will be really, really key and important to overcoming this. But you can totally get it under control. You can 100% heal from this. We just have to get you some people and some support to help you work through it. Okay? I hope that helps. Final question, question number nine, says, Is it possible to not remember a trauma correctly or even all of the details like any of your senses? I was a teen when I was forced to talk about a trauma and was trying to piece together what it all meant with what I was remembering, but mostly the feelings and emotions. I grew up with parents that needed an answer to everything, no matter what. It was proven to not have happened because I didn't show the usual signs or emotions, but there was nothing else said or done about it other than being told to never bring it up again. Wow, never bring it up again. Jesus Christ. I still have these feelings and emotions and I'm still jumpy around that person. So what could be the deal? Or is there something really wrong with me? Thank you. Now, it is possible to not remember a trauma correctly or even all of the details because we could have been dissociated. When our system's overwhelmed and we're dissociated, we're not able to form memory. And my girlfriend, um, Dr. Alexa Altman, who's a trauma specialist, had told me a year or two ago that many trauma memories don't exist because they weren't formed because we were too overwhelmed and our system couldn't form that memory at all. And so we'll go digging for full recollection of something and it won't be there. And yes, that sucks. But it doesn't mean we can't heal because there are other memories. Uh, there are memories in our body, like cellular memory. There's also memories of like your parents saying, not talk about it again. And just even the memories surrounding it that we can work on and we can help you heal. Now, I think probably the best way for you to kind of go about healing from this would be to find a therapist that does somatic experiencing or possibly EMDR. I think somatic experiencing would be more beneficial for you because something happened to you and you're still jumpy. So you're sho- showing signs of PTSD. Um And it's in your body, right? We don't have the emotions or the memories surrounding it, but we can like get it out of our bodies and heal that way too. Uh, Schema therapy could be another way potentially in, but again, it's, yeah, that might be helpful. The more I think about it, that actually could be a really, really beneficial type of therapy too. But because, and even trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy could be helpful. But I think the best case would be somatic experiencing and it is very common to not have full memory of our trauma unfortunately when we're so overwhelmed it's really difficult for our brain to form narratives and to make sense of things because it's trying to preserve us in the moment and that can entail it pulling the ripcord like wow i'm out of here and yeah and i know it's hard but again it doesn't mean we can't heal we just have to go about it in a different way it's like that front door is locked but we can break in that side window you know we can jimmy that open and get in and still work and heal Okay? And nothing's really wrong with you. You've just been traumatized and you're struggling with PTSD symptoms, but it does get better. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. I know this time of year can be super, super stressful and overwhelming. Make sure you're taking some time for yourself. Make sure you're giving yourself a break, time to breathe, right? It can be just so overwhelming. We can feel we can feel like things are just going at a really quick pace and we're triggered and tra- traumatized all the time. So make sure you're taking those breaks to build up your resilience, to do things that feel good to you, spending time with people who will fill you up instead of take from you. All that is really, really important. I hope you have a wonderful, happy holidays and a happy I new year. And I will see you next time. Bye questions you've always wanted to know, ask Katie.